Welcome to the Seedfield Podcast, the show where Antiochians share their knowledge, tell their stories, and come together to win victories for humanity. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk, and today we're happy to bring you the third and final episode in our series on human sexuality. Over the last month, we've heard from leading scholars at Antioch about the importance of supporting young people as they discover and explore questions of identity and sexuality. And in our second episode, we talked about sex ed and how sex-positive multicultural education can help young people avoid or work through fear and shame around their sexuality, and ultimately how this can help them be safer in their lives. Today, I'm really excited for us to pivot and talk not about developing sexuality or how to support young people, but about sexuality among adults. So we're specifically going to focus on how sex therapy can help us have healthier relationships and be more comfortable with our sexuality. And I'm especially excited that we're gonna talk a little bit about ethical polyamory and shame reduction through narrative. To have this conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by Fiona O'Farrell. Fiona designed and is the director of Antioch's sexuality certificate programs, and they teach in the couple and family therapy program at Antioch Seattle. Beyond being a licensed marriage and family therapist, Fiona is also a certified sexuality therapist. So welcome to the Seedfield podcast, Fiona. Hi, Jasper. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm super excited to pick your brain about all topics, sex and sex therapy. And I thought to start off, it would be great, as is our way, to disclose to our listeners what positions we're coming from. And I think that's particularly important when we're talking about power and, you know, what is sex about, if not power, at least in some part. So for myself, I'd want people to know that I'm a white cisgendered millennial man. I don't live with a disability and I'm middle class, have a white collar job, and I hold a postgraduate degree. And while I'm not 100% straight, I am currently in a monogamous relationship with my partner who identifies as a woman. So Fiona, could you tell us a little bit about what position you come from in this conversation? Absolutely. And I love that we're starting out this way. So thanks for leading that, Jasper. So I identify as white and I'm currently, how I explain my gender identity is that I'm exploring. I still haven't really landed on a term or a way of identifying myself that feels like a good fit for me, but I am femme presenting and I lean femme in my gender identity. I'm also pass as hetero as I am partnered with a cis man, but I identify as pansexual. I also do not live with a disability and would identify as neurotypical. I currently hold a graduate degree and am in a PhD program and have stable income and housing, work full-time at Antioch University, and I have a small part-time private practice in sex therapy as well. And I do not have children, but I do have two corgi dogs, which are my furry children that are a big part of my identity as well. I think it's important since we're talking about sex that I was raised Catholic and the joke I like to offer to folks is if you want your kid to be a sex therapist, then go ahead and raise them with Catholic values because that's where all that, you know, um, guilt and shame stuff, you know, my interest in working with that comes from. So those are probably the key pieces and definitely let me know if there's anything I'm forgetting that you'd like me to include. No, that's great. And I think you were more thorough than me. I mean, I feel like mentioning that you're housed is is super relevant in, in our society today. 
So I want to know more about you, though, than just these kind of like census form type descriptors. So I think the question that I want to ask is you've devoted your professional life to being a therapist and really a sex therapist and kind of combining those two things. And I know that many of our listeners are not themselves sex therapists. And, and I think a lot of us haven't ever actually had the services of a sex therapist in our lives. So I'm curious, what was the moment when you realized that you wanted to be a sex therapist? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, for anybody practicing as a sex therapist, they have to be trained in psychotherapy or counseling, you know, whatever word we might use. So actually kind of my awakening to sex therapy was in my graduate program training to be a couple and family therapist. And really, I took a human sexuality course, and I was lucky to have a really wonderful mentor and instructor of that course. And it opened my eyes to the power of education and information and what lack of information, kind of how it impacts our health and wellness overall. Um, And after I took that class, I just thought everybody needs to know this information and how can I be a part of that process and that was that was the beginning of it. So I dedicated my postgraduate training to becoming a certified sex therapist and, you know, just really wanted to increase access to knowledge and sexuality-based mental health for my community and for other folks that, you know, I kind of felt like I had been missing something and it had been given to me. through that course. And I just, I was hooked. Basically, that was, it was a big wake up call. Yeah, that's a wonderful instinct to have to to think, wow, this is wonderful information that I've been given. How can I pay that forward and actually bring it to other people? So I, I want us to back up just a little bit and talk about what sex therapy is. So my understanding, I feel like it's useful for me to just tell you what I think, and you can kind of correct me. So my understanding is, at its most basic, sex therapy is a a medical field that's interested in the well-being of patients that works to improve clients' sexual well-being and to treat sexual dysfunction. And that dysfunction can include like high-profile things like erectile dysfunction, which, you know, there's like drugs for, um, but it also can include all sorts of other issues and uh, issues relating to gender and relating to relationships. So, Do I have that basically right? And maybe you could tell me like some of the most common applications of it. Yeah. And interestingly, what I would say is depending on who you speak to, the answer to that might vary a little bit because we can have medical doctors who are trained in sex therapy and we can have master's level psychotherapy clinicians trained in sex therapy. We can have clergy folks trained in sex therapy. So I would say that, you know, maybe somebody who goes into the medical field will kind of err more on that intersection of physiology and medicine and dysfunction. Um, How I like to describe it to folks is, first of all, it's important for us to clarify that sex therapy is talk therapy. So we don't do any hands-on work with our clients. There are some folks who identify as sexuality therapists or will use terms like that who do do hands-on work, and that's not the field that we're in. And really what it means is that the fundamental belief of folks who practice sex therapy is that sexuality is an integral part of being a human and of life. 
And it's actually a lens we adopt to look at any issue that a client might be bringing in. So an example that I give is I might be working with a client who their main concern is depression, but part of the work that I do with them is I might ask more questions and integrate more around their sexuality and sexual well-being into how does that show up in your depression, how does accessing your sexuality actually maybe alleviate some of your depressive symptoms. So it's kind of this filter at which we look at almost everything that a person experiences. And that's the main thing I would think about with a therapist, with a sex therapist. The drawback of that is then we're a much broader field than I think most people understand um, because we generally like to think of a particular issue that somebody might have a concern with, and that's the type of therapist that you see. But really, it's also kind of the way that we look at how a person exists and functions in the world. So it's it's pretty broad in that sense. Okay, so it, it's not constrained just to like, oh, sorry, you're telling me something that didn't happen in the bedroom. I can't talk about that. It's much more how our experience of sexuality can influence all of our life. Exactly. And then I would say in general, there are some um, kind of cornerstone things that sex therapists are have more training in than your average therapist, which would be things like sexual concerns around physiology and arousal, orientation and identity around gender, sexual orientation, relationship constellations. And then I would say that we're kind of much more likely to be affirmative of what folks might call erotically marginalized practices like kink or BDSM. Yeah. I I mean, everything you're describing sounds to me like things that I would hope any therapist would have an openness to non-normative, if we're going to keep using that term, orientations or relational practices or erotic orientations. So when someone comes in for sex therapy, what what is the process there or, or where do you start? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So what I like to be clear with folks, and I'll kind of really speak from the psychotherapy end of things, is that you can't be a sex therapist without being a psychotherapist first. So usually a lot of the ways we would answer that question depends on how that particular person does therapy. And so I can only really speak to my experience, but typically what we'll do is we'll have folks come in either individually or in their, you know, relationship constellations that could be couples or dyads or triads, or maybe even folks in kind of multiple relationships. And we get an understanding of what it is that they're hoping to get some help and support in. And then one thing that I wouldn't say is universally practiced, but we do use something called the PLICIT model, which is an acronym for permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and then intensive therapy. And what that is, is we know that because of the kind of stigma that exists around talking about sex or what folks' kind of confusing experiences can be around sex, that one of the most helpful things we can do for folks in alleviating their concerns is giving them permission to be full sexual beings and that whatever it is, as long as it's consensual, is acceptable and okay. And we find that about 50% of folks who come in with sexual concerns, once they've experienced that permission level, actually will report an alleviation of their concerns and symptoms. Um, So we always say like we kind of approach therapy from an inverted stance is that we only get down to the like 
deep underlying, you know, what could be going on um, after we've worked with them around permission, alleviating shame, giving them some information about what is I wish, I mean, I know we're not being video recorded right now, but you and I are both using air quotes so much here. Um, but just really dismantling those beliefs we all hold around what is normal and what is not normal in our sexual selves. And w- we find that if we can work on those things, whether it's the relationships you've decided to be in and the level of acceptance folks have around that, or, you know, whatever you do in your solo practices, or maybe it's something you're interested in that you haven't even told another human being before. Um, Usually, if we can kind of give space for people to just accept that that's okay, and that's absolutely normal, then uh, we usually see that a lot of the initial concerns have been resolved. Yeah. And I I think it feels it feels to me like that's important because our society has so little room for that. Yeah, and so I think what what a lot of people are really worried about is in uh, one, it's going to feel like a confessional. It isn't. Your sex therapist is trained well to ask appropriate questions and be really curious and non judgmental. But also, a lot of it is just kind of unpacking a lot of the things we have held throughout our lives that has signaled to us that something isn't okay. And it's working with typically a a clinician, an individual clinician who just gives so much allowance for those to kind of come forward and for them to be explored. So for some folks, this is, you know, two, three sessions. And for some people, it's 24 sessions and it could take a couple months or it could take two years. Um, and, And it really is just kind of allowing people to just kind of break free of a lot of the discourse they've been taught or the messaging that they've been given and really determine that for themselves as opposed to what's been put on them throughout time. Yeah. You you brought up this word shame. And I know that part of part of your practice as a therapist is what you call shame reduction through narrative practice. So can you tell us first what what is the importance of reducing shame and like how does that impact us? Yeah. So First, I, I think it's important that we kind of distinguish what shame is. And I, I always reference Brene Brown. <laughs> but Brene has this beautiful definition of shame, which is that, you know, a lot of people conflate shame and guilt. And guilt is something that's useful and productive and informs us of something we want to correct for, you know, staying connected to folks in the future. Whereas shame is a complete undermining of our characteristics, and it is built in this belief that we are not worthy of love and connection. So where guilt is really useful and helpful, shame is typically something that actually pulls us away from people, kind of degrades our sense of being. And unfortunately, in the kind of society that we live in, we've just received so many mixed messages around sexuality there's a big impact and, and one of the things that's been not new to the field, but definitely more, um, I would say, research and investigation is also looking at the impact of colonization and white supremacy on these messaging around sexuality. And it really can be the thing that locks us in believing that we're not worthy of love, connection, 
and what we're drawn to sexually because often we have these really rigid rules about what is okay, what is not okay, what is considered, again, air quotes, normative. Those have this ability to just invite our deepest sense of unworthiness. Yeah, I think I think in our society, if you don't understand a connection between shame and sex, you maybe aren't existing in the same culture that I grew up in. It seems all over the place. And the way that you explain that, your idea of shame versus guilt, that seems like a super useful distinction. So you talk about shame reduction through narrative practice. How how does narrative come into this? What What do you mean by narrative practice? Yeah. So narrative practice is um, rooted in theoretical orientation of narrative therapy that came around in the, I hope I referenced this correctly, but the late 80s. And it is built under the understanding that we construct our social understanding of the world. And because we construct most things, and this is why it works so well with sex therapy, you know, gender is a construct, race is a construct. What's defined as beautiful is a construct in our society. What's defined as acceptable sexually is a construct in our society. And so what narrative practice does is it looks at how the what we call the dominant narrative has been constructed by our society. So these aren't actually what necessarily individual people's experiences are or what they endorse. But collectively, we've all made some agreements that this is the case. Um, So things like gender is on a binary, right? That most people fall into male or female. Narrative practice would say that that is a dominant narrative that exists in the world, but it doesn't, it usually doesn't serve most individual people. And so, so if you're experiencing some gender dysphoria, you could dismantle the shame you might be feeling around that by looking out and saying, okay, but this, this idea that you have to be a man or a woman is something that society has just decided on that doesn't have a, a real basis in fact. Yeah, exactly. So you and your therapist would work together at kind of deconstructing what has, you know, those, con- those dominant narratives that I was going to say, and then really look at whether or not they serve you. And then you co-construct a new narrative that is more in line with your individual experiences and alignment, um, which you know, it, this is all in theory, right? But what that really does a great job of is disconnecting the shame from the, the human being, right? Because the shame is then more rooted in the construction of that thought or that, that message as opposed to the shame being a thing that that person embodies in their personhood. Yeah, that's beautifully put. And I think that that idea of using narrative structure to, to deconstruct our shame and to really interrogate whether that's something we should hold is a good one. Not even is, is is just a good one, but is useful outside of the realm of sex therapy. It's kind of useful throughout everything. I wanted to stick with one of the things that you said, though. You said that there's been a lot of work in the field of decolonizing look and looking at the ways that like a white supremacist or a patriarchal society has built up this, has built up this field and has built up our ideas around what sex itself should be and should look like. So, I mean, I totally see our society as this emphasis really on the experiences of straight white men as sexual beings, as like the sexual archetype, we could maybe say. And so I was wondering if you could, if you could tell me more about that decolonizing work that you've been doing and what issues people who don't fit that mold might experience. Of course. And I want to put the big disclaimer out there that I am absolutely in learner mode of this. I don't even know if I'm 
really doing the work, I'm still in the position of of learning and taking in, particularly that there are sexuality educators and professionals in our field that are doing phenomenal work looking at the influence of colonization on our kind of society's agreements around sexuality and, you know, normative culture and those things. You know, this is knowledge that a lot of colleagues and folks that I work with have had for a long time or been thinking about, but because of their positionality or their identifiers, that they haven't always been given a platform to vocalize these different things. I'm thinking about the ways that I am still learning about the diversity that exists in our historical stories and the legacies through our intergenerational lenses. But because white supremacist culture has been the most dominant, there is this process of kind of getting back to and uncovering other ways of understanding sexuality, other ways of looking at the world. A big indicator of that, of course, like one of the most prominent examples is gender, that many other cultures have not subscribed to a male-female gender binary. And those have been in existence for, you know, millennia and in past civilizations. But when colonization, you know, kind of took over and dismantled a lot of the ways of transferring information in other cultures, then that's where we get left with this kind of gender binary. So that's one example of looking at it. We know many indigenous cultures in the Americas have, you know, the two-spirit or, you know, something that is neither male or female, something in between or encompasses both gender energies. And we actually see that replicated many different places around the world. So it's interesting, you know, I I talk to a lot of folks who they feel like learning about expansive gender identities is a new thing. Like all of a sudden, you know, there's been more focus, but really what it is, is this has been in, in existence forever. And for the first time, we have been giving space for those narratives to come forward and for those to be examined and looked at. Yeah, thank you. That's a that's a great reminder that what can seem as new to someone who is just learning about something does not is not necessarily brand new in the history of the world and up for other people it might be yesterday's news. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I want to give the briefest of shout outs, although it doesn't need to be brief, but to asexuality yes. as an experience that also, I mean, I think we naturally are talking a lot about different sexual expressions, but um that also is is something that I think is newly visible in our society. It's people who aren't interested in uh, engaging in sex with other people. Mm -hmm. And that's actually always a a conundrum when we're training and working with a new sex therapist is we can, you know, we like to just simplify lots of things, right? It's a way that we learn things. It's a cognitive mechanism that we have. But often for folks, what they think is like asexual must mean like complete absence of sexuality at all. And it's really about allowing every single person to have their definition of sexuality, which may mean, you know, not interested in doing any kind of physical sexual behavior, may not be involved with other people, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, I continuously, one of the things I love about this work is really understanding that, you know, the only thing we can count on in sexuality is variation, 
that is the that's the only quote unquote normative thing that I know exists in sexuality. And when we allow people to define that for themselves, it is just like radical things happen, you know, and uh, we all get to live with more pleasure and more joy and less shame in our life. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect segue. Before we get to the end, I want to leave a a chunk of time for us to talk about another of your interests within sex therapy, which is ethical polyamory and specifically counseling people in non-monogamous relationships. And I know that you, you teach this when you're training other sex therapists and other therapists. So I want to talk to you about this. And in part, I see this as becoming more common. It's definitely still not super common, but it's more common throughout our society. And at the same time, I think a lot of people haven't heard about it or don't know that much about it. So I guess I'd again give my my kind of pocket definition, which is polyamory is this model where you have multiple sexual partners and everybody ha- has kind of informed consent. So everybody knows to a negotiated on degree, but generally knows what other people are doing. And that that includes like a lot of openness and communication. And that also means that there's these opportunities for miscommunication and emotional uh, difficulty. Just like being in a relationship with anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess my question is, what would you add to that definition? And what challenges do you see polyamorous people bringing to and sex just therapy? if it's okay, I think what's really important, and we come across this so often in our certificate program, is the power of language and labels and how much things are changing. So I think I can say pretty solidly, there's still not a completely acceptable term for what you and I are trying to talk about here. For some folks, polyamory is how they like to identify themselves, but for other people, that's not what they practice. And so they err towards ethical or consensual non-monogamy. And then for some people, the term ethical or or consensual non-monogamy is kind of only created an attempt to help people who don't practice it accept it. And so I'll even hear from some folks like they don't like being a non anything. And so they like to say, I'm, you know, I have multiple relationships or something like that. So, you know, there's a, I feel like often with kind of, again, non-conforming practices that are kind of, again, seen as outside of our normative culture, there's also a lot of conflict around how do we communicate this with other people so that they understand kind of what it is that we do and don't do. And even just what folks call themselves is just like the variety and the range is unbelievable. So I might be referencing multiple relationships just to kind of keep it as broad as possible. Okay. Okay. That's that's useful to know that there's there's this linguistic conversation going on and probably irresolvable, at least in the near term. And one thing I will say is some folks who are in multiple relationships, it it's not necessarily even sexual. Like some of their other partners, they have more of an emotional or an intellectual affinity with. Um, so there can be all different reasons that folks partner up, you know, with multiple partners. In terms of common, quote unquote, problems that come in, the first thing that I'll say is, Being in relationships is hard, whether that's you're in a relationship with one other person, three other people, whether that's friendships, workplace environments, that type of thing. So the most common thing I encounter with folks in these types of relationships are actually really not that different from the kinds of concerns that I have couples in kind of traditional monogamous dyads come in with. 
It's often around agreements and communication, trying to feel more connected or trying to establish boundaries with each other. I think one of the things that sex therapists are often referenced for is people who have generally been in monogamous relationships who are looking to open up. That's usually a time we'll see an influx of folks accessing sex therapy. So we can do things like support folks in understanding how to make agreements, understanding how to engage in adding additional partners in. One of the hardest things is, and I hope it's okay, I'll make this parallel. I also will have people come to me and they'll say, we're preparing to have children or we're pregnant and we just want to do everything we can so it goes as smoothly as possible. And similarly with having a baby is like, there are certain things you can control. There are certain things that are going to be totally out of your control. Folks who are coming to get help and support and opening up their relationship often want to do it all right so that they don't make any mistakes or nobody gets hurt. And unfortunately, being in relationships is messy and complicated, whether that's one or five or 20. And really what we help folks do is try and be as transparent as possible, try and have really great ways of not only communicating around positive things, but how do you communicate when you have a conflict or when you don't see eye to eye on an agreement or maybe an agreement has been violated and how do you recover from that? And those are, no matter who I'm working with or no matter what their relationship constellation is, that's what we do. That's one of the things we do. Sex therapists just are trained to know that that can happen with all sorts of different relationships and not just monogamous ones. So I would say that's kind of, you know, where we do the extra training. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that you brought up this sort of parallel to expecting a child and maybe opening a relationship or moving from a monogamous to a multiple relationships space. And one of the things that it made me think about is, so my partner often says that she thinks like the best thing about polyamorous or a multiple relationships approach is that it can create these bigger family structures that can really have some advantages when there are kids in the in the picture because children really thrive when there are a lot of like adults that you can count on at the same time this seems like a total minefield in our society people are used to kids having a mom and a dad and maybe they've just opened up to like a mom and a mom so do you do you see in your practice polyamorous couples or, or multiple relationships folks raising children in bigger family structures? And is that a minefield? Um, yes, I do see folks who have um, who are raising children in open relationship structures. It's kind of a trick question, Jasper, because having kids is just hard. There's always negotiation and challenges in being a parent. What I would say is more common is actually the um, potential stigma and barriers that folks in relationship structures where they've got maybe uh, more than two parents, the things that they come across. So who's allowed to pick these kids up from school? Who's allowed to take them to the emergency room? The inherent bias towards two-person couples, that is a struggle. And, you know, that that we know very well because single parents identify that being a challenge for them. Divorced or blended families identify that as being challenging for them. So we're actually not, that, you know, that, that's a, a lot of the times where I'm working with folks or, or working with students around kind of acclimating towards the variety of ways that folks can be in relationship. I usually say, look at 
there we already have structures in our society that we've decided is okay, right? And we're always evolving because, you know, if we were if we were to go back into the 60s and 70s, you know, divorced or separated families would have more stigma and taboo. Unmarried folks with children would have more taboo. So the good news is is I think that we've got a lot on the potential horizon around having more acceptance and inclusion of a variety of ways families are delineated and identified. It's it's interesting to kind of see that a lot of the work often comes with supporting folks and navigating those things, which does put a lot of increased stress on families, on parents wanting to make the right decisions about protecting their children while still living authentically for themselves. And often that is a part of the work that we do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up just looking towards the the horizon and the future and what what is coming forward um because that's a kind of a natural place to start to start wrapping things up you obviously don't work just as a sex therapist but especially here at Antioch you're an educator of future therapists and I wanted to ask you you know those those are the future those are um, where the field is moving and I wanted to ask, what do you see your students, this is kind of a more general question, what do you see your students being most excited about? And what do you think they most need to learn about as they engage in their studies and prepare to be therapists of the future? What a great question. Um, so I wish we could survey them. <laughs> but I would definitely say that isomorphically, when we have students who join our program, they're also given permission to be full sexual beings. And they're then also kind of given this gift of being able to work with folks where they are offering that permission to other people. And so what I would say is like what I find our students are excited about is that this is a legitimate field to be in, that this is work that's really needed. The demand is incredibly high. Our communities are really desperate for folks who are trained more in sex therapy which also means folks who are more gender inclusive, more inclusive of working with multiple relationships, more open to working with diversity and sexual expressions. I mean, we really are talking about marginalized communities here. You know, I could rattle off a bunch of statistics about how trans folks are treated, particularly trans women of color. We need folks out there in the field offering services. And so I think that this is a track that they can integrate into their training and into their program. It's just so cool. I love that. I think that that's a totally wonderful goal for therapy as a, as a, as a wider field and also sex therapy as a field moving forward. And I also just appreciate you coming on our show because I think that this doesn't just happen in therapist's offices. It also is a conversation that it would be really healthy for us to have more often and more widely as a society as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's hope, you know, that's what our program is really based in in is advocacy and getting kind of normalizing and getting more and more of the conversation out there um so that, you know, I, my dream actually is it wouldn't be a specialty anymore. Is that it would be just integrated into how we think about people's, you know, well-being and their, you know, overall kind of sense of self. So. Well, I think you're you're on your way and thank you for coming on on the seed field and sharing that vision and all of this knowledge with me and with our listeners. Of course, thank you so much, Jasper.
More information about the sexuality certificate programs that Fiona both designed and currently directs is available on Antioch's website, and we're putting a link to that in our show notes. We also have a link there to the master's program Fiona teaches in, Antioch Seattle's Master of Arts in Couple and Family Therapy. We post these show notes on our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. A special thanks to Karen Hamilton and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seed Field Podcast. Podcast.